Welcome to episode five, Creating Client Success Stories Through Treatment and Discharge Planning by Elizabeth Irias, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. My name is Elizabeth E. Rias, and I will be your presenter today. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist with specializations in utilization review, clinical management, and quality assurance. As a consultant and trainer, I have the pleasure of working closely with clinical teams across the country in order to improve their quality of care, their documentation practices, as well as their utilization review outcomes. I also operate a private practice in Westlake Village, California, where I provide adolescent and young adult therapy, family therapy, and addictive disorder treatment, and I also have an additional focus with LGBT. Our topic is creating client success stories through treatment and discharge planning. So much research has shown the importance of an effective and active individualized treatment plan, but it's often one of the things that clinicians perhaps put on the back burner because we are responding to client crises and we're working with clients in the room with us. So there's this form that we might have done at the beginning of the treatment encounter, but maybe we're not as good at often updating it and really reflecting on the client's progress or their prognosis in treatment. So when we're looking at the big picture thinking with things like medical necessity, part of that is updating the treatment plan frequently and making sure that we're basically holding ourselves accountable and being mindful of the client's progress. And if they're not making progress, what we're doing differently in order to remedy that. One of the reasons I do what I do is because I want to improve the relationship that clinicians have with our clinical documentation. I initially in behavioral health found myself dreading my notes at the end of the day. I was spending so much time writing. I think I was capturing the wrong material. And I also really didn't understand the treatment planning process. It was something that wasn't very well explained to me by different supervisors and different programs and courses that I'd taken. And it just didn't seem to really make sense. So I spent a whole lot of time doing some research and looking at different materials to see what we could be doing differently and how we can do it more effectively. And when you look at different models, like the Medi-Cal delivery system in California, they require such a rigorous treatment plan. It, it gives you the opportunity to kind of step back and reflect on why they're so rigorous. There is a lot of research that backs up the importance of the clinical treatment plan. And I think part of it feels a little bit disjointed for us as therapists and counselors because we're very used to being in the room and building rapport and being present. And treatment planning in a lot of ways feels like it takes us away from that, at least the paperwork aspect. What I'm hoping to accomplish today is reviewing different factors from a treatment plan, but also the overarching theme of treatment plans and how to really capture the most important components in the documents that you're writing and how you're engaging your clients in that process to make it collaborative and make it effective. It really shouldn't be a document that we write at the end of the day and then we file it away and forget about it. It needs to be something that's living and breathing and continually responding to what's going on with that client. I'm hopeful that this discussion will give you some information and some resources to help make the treatment planning process a little bit easier for you. We're also going to be spending a little bit of time discussing discharge planning. Discharge planning, especially if you work in facilities, can be one of the most difficult things to conquer because sometimes treatment episodes end abruptly and facilities are kind of left in a lurch, not knowing how to streamline that process and how to best support their clients in that transition. So we're going to talk a little bit about the medical approach to discharge planning and how we can apply some of those same uh, pieces of logic to our discharge planning process in a clinical way and improve the experience for our clients. For most of us, we need referrals and discharge planning that really impacts a client's experience of the treatment that you delivered to them. If they leave with a bad taste in their mouth because they felt like they didn't have the resources that they needed and they didn't know what to expect, that's never a good thing to have dissatisfied clients walking around um, for any number of reasons. But in terms of your personal reputation, 
the treatment plan and discharge plan are actually really important and they have a big impact on your reputation in the local community. So we'll kind of bring together all of these factors today in our discussion. The next thing I want to do is take a cue from the medical model when it comes to treatment planning. Now in behavioral health, our clinical documentation is scrutinized just like that of medical records. And it is actually a medical record. It's just that we're not actually medical providers. We're behavioral health providers. But our charts are effectively legal documents. And doctors are trained to be pretty diligent in their treatment planning process. And I have an example of this, and I want to kind of use this as a framework for our conversation today. So I had a shoulder injury and I went to a physical therapist and I had to go see that physical therapist many times per week. And pretty much every session when I saw that therapist, they would ask me about my mobility and about my pain and they would evaluate how I could rotate my arm and how high I could lift my elbow. And every single session, they updated my treatment plan and they said, okay, it appears that you can you can now effectively do this and lift this much weight. So we're going to close out that goal and we're going to move on to the next one. And it was very structured. It was this really well-oiled machine. And I worked with a couple of different physical therapists. And what was really neat was that one provider would finish their note, but it so perfectly described for the other person what had been done and what was going to be done next. That's what we need to be working toward as behavioral health providers, a treatment plan that becomes an active part of the process. And I, as a patient with my physical therapists, was included in that. They asked me, you know, do, do you think this is reasonable? I'm, I'm asking you to go home and do these stretches twice per day. Do you think that that's something you can do? And how can I support you with this? Those are the kind of things that we need to be doing in behavioral health. And maybe some of us are, which is awesome. So high five. Um, but for those of us that aren't, we can make some refinements in the way that we're doing our treatment planning and also our discharge planning because they are really intimately linked. And that can have such a profound impact both on our clinical documentation and capturing things like medical necessity, but also on the patient's experience. Let's take a look at something I call the clinical cycle. These four steps include assessment, diagnosis, treatment plan, and progress notes. And basically all of these pieces need to be continually working together. So your initial assessment, from that you identified different symptoms, you identified functional impairment, you made some uh, conclusions based on the client's history, and you eventually arrived at a diagnosis. So from that diagnosis, your next step is then to critically evaluate what needs to happen in order for us to address this diagnostic condition. And then from that into our progress notes, that's basically what we're doing on the day-to-day -day in order to meet the needs of that treatment plan. Our treatment plan needs to be continually responding to the changing factors with the client. So for example, I had a client that I was seeing for a couple of months and I thought that she had a depressive disorder. The evidence from her psychiatrist and from other providers reflected that. And as our treatment progressed, I realized that there were a couple of times that she came into session and she had pressured speech and she she was really animated and she had these kind of big emotional experiences of the world and she would go and do these crazy adventures. And then it dawned on me that I was probably looking at hypomania. So I realized that my original diagnosis was no longer accurate. I needed to refine and update that. So now in working with her psychiatrist, we revised her diagnosis to include a bipolar diagnosis. But from that, her treatment plan then needs to change because the issues that I would address with her depressive disorder are different than the issues that I would address related to her hypomania and her depressive disorder. So when she is feeling like she might have a manic state that's coming on, how are we addressing that? What uh, safety planning resources do we have in place when she's feeling really depressed? So the treatment plan needs to keep changing based on how our client's doing, not to mention that any number of DSM diagnoses also should continue changing. So let's look at substance use disorders. We have them ranking from severe and then all the way up to in remission. So really, if we're treating a client with a substance use disorder and they're getting better, then their diagnosis should be routinely changing. So again, if the diagnosis is changing, our treatment plan needs to be changing, and that's going to impact what we are doing in our sessions. All of these pieces need to continually tie together because we're constantly doing a reassessment. 
in a lot of ways, every session might be a reassessment. Uh, when we hear from the client about how they're doing out in the world, and then they come into our office and they tell us about it and we assess their mood and their different symptoms. So one of the reasons I bring this up with this clinical cycle and how all these pieces fit together, the treatment plan is one of the critical parts. And we can't overlook that because oftentimes we'll, we'll focus on that assessment and diagnosis and then we kind of steam along because we've been trained in these wonderful different empirically based processes and we have specialized education that's so valuable, but we can't overlook the maintenance of that individualized treatment plan. And we'll also talk about how to involve a client in the treatment planning process so that they understand what we're looking for and what they might look for to know if they're improving. Now I want to review the different treatment plan types. There are essentially two different kinds. Uh, option one, which is a symptom-based treatment plan, and option two, which is a theory-based treatment plan. So option one, that symptom-based treatment plan, is generally what's expected by third-party payers. This is what you see uh, requested by insurance companies or by different county agencies or by Medi-Cal. And Basically, with this, we are designing treatment based on the symptom presentation, and we're not really looking at it from a theoretical basis. We're not working with the uh, stated aim of increasing a client's insight. We're targeting very specific symptoms, and we have very clear, measurable goals that we're using in order to assess where those symptoms are. The pitfalls associated with this include um, the focus on the symptom itself, not on the functioning of that individual. Um, we also might ignore systemic issues when we're just looking at the symptom and not the factors that are affecting the, system, the symptom. And it also minimizes our theoretical basis. A lot of us have a very passionate view of treatment, whether that's CBT or dialectical behavioral therapy um, or psychoanalytic or 12-step. All of those influence the way that we see our treatment and we see how a client is doing. And sometimes that symptom-based treatment plan can really feel removed from how we've been theoretically trained. So then option two is a theory-based treatment plan. And this allows for a more comprehensive systemic perspective. This allows us to really reflect on how that person's childhood may be impacting their current functioning and their current symptoms. It allows us to zoom out. But when we look at the downsides of that, it we may overlook uh, specific symptoms and functional impairments because we're looking at it systemically and we're trying to figure out how all these pieces fit together. And it's also not easily measured. So for example, development of insight is something that a lot of models find really important. And actually, even on a symptom-based model, you might find important. But how do you necessarily measure that? Um, so finding a happy medium between option one, the symptom-based treatment plan, and option two, the theory-based treatment plan, can sometimes feel difficult. These really can combine into something called a clinical treatment plan. And basically that allows us to use theory to influence what we're doing, but we're still measuring what we're doing through symptoms and through functional impairment. We're making it really concrete and we can still have all of our wonderful explanations that help us determine what's going on with this client. So for example, if, if we tend to look at the world through a psychoanalytic perspective, we're going to have a very different perspective than someone who's highly trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. The nice thing about a clinical treatment plan is that you can still have both and create, um, and by both, I mean a theoretical basis and a symptom-based treatment plan and bring them together. With a clinical treatment plan, it really is going to have three different components. One includes a therapeutic task. So these are the things that we're going to be doing as therapists. And we're looking at this uh, through the eyes of initial, middle, and late phases of treatment. So obviously in the initial phase, we're doing the assessment, we're forming rapport, we're doing continual reassessment um, to see if our initial evaluation holds up over time. Then in the middle phase, the active working phase, we have different treatment goals. And then in the latter phase, we're really starting to pull it back a little bit and give that client uh, more autonomy and give them a plan for the future when you're not working with them therapeutically or in a counseling basis. So the first the first thing in this clinical treatment plan are the therapeutic tasks. The second thing, uh, we, need, we need a goal. So we're looking at goals 
that are unique to the client and what thoughts, feelings, behaviors, or interactions will be increased or reduced. So again, these goals outline um, what thoughts, feelings, behaviors, or interactions will be increased or reduced. And I like this language. I pull this from Adams and Greeter, Treatment Planning for Person-Centered Care. It's a wonderful book because this language, I think, is pretty concrete and helps us wrap our minds around it. And the third element are interventions. So these are the ways that we as counselors and therapists are going to work with a client to these agreed-upon goals. And this can be theory-based. It doesn't necessarily have to be symptom-based. Um, our interventions can be theory-based, but we're measuring those interventions and how effective they are based on the symptoms. Treatment planning really matters because it helps us deliver individualized care. Consistently on different studies, it's been illustrated that individualized care is far more effective than standardized care, where we kind of plunk the client or patient into a certain treatment modality and they just kind of roll along with it. That we say, okay, you're going to be here for six weeks. Um, the research has basically shown that our treatment should be entirely responsive to that individual and how they're individually progressing through treatment. We also need to keep up with the medical model, like the physical therapy example we need to continually be integrating the client and also updating the treatment plan. I also want to point out uh, something that's called a hallway audit. Uh, this happens with things like joint commission, state licensing, uh, CARF, for example, where they might come by either for a planned or unplanned visit. And they've been known to stop clients in the hallway and say, can you tell me what you're working on? Um, this actually happens. And clients are expected to know what they're working on because we are expected to have individualized care that often requires the client's involvement in the treatment planning process. Um, so if we want to stay ahead of these hallway audits, we need to make sure we're integrating our clients into this process. And the overall goal is to keep our treatment plans from being dead in the water. They should be dynamic and changing um, and not gathering dust on, on a bookshelf somewhere or kind of hidden away in our EMR. If we work collaboratively in a treatment team, then we should be continually revisiting that treatment plan depending on the level of care. Um, but it should be a constant conversation. And even on an outpatient basis, chances are most of you are working in some kind of treatment team, be it with different teachers or maybe a client's family members or psychiatric support or nurse practitioners, things like that. They're all part of that treatment plan. And really, we should be often checking in with them to see how things are going and then revising what we're doing based on the feedback of others. And hopefully they're also revising their treatment plan based on our feedback. Before we can jump into the goals and objectives of the treatment plan, we need to start by very clearly defining the problem. What is the intensity, frequency, or duration of this problem? Is it weekly? Is it daily? Is it hourly? Are they having issues at work with tearfulness every week in business meetings? Or is this individual struggling with substance use that occurs predominantly over the weekend? We need to define that first. And then we also need to ask, uh, what attempts, if any, have been made previously to solve this problem? Have they done treatment before? Have they tried exercising more? Have they um, tried joining different clubs to increase their social act activities? We need to be asking those questions so we can understand what worked in the past and what didn't work, um, what medications maybe were used. And we also need to capture any safety consequences related to this problem um, and any consequences in general. So what happens when this occurs? When you don't get any sleep, do you feel like you might fall asleep at the wheel because you drive a lot for work? If there are consequences associated with that, we need to figure out in our treatment plan, how are we going to address those safety-related factors? Because those are number one. And once we've gotten past the safety-related consequences and the risk-related consequences, what are the other consequences that we're trying to improve? So are they having difficulty at work? Are they having difficulty at home? Um, are they uh, not performing as well at school as they'd like to? Or are they at risk for getting kicked out of school? Our treatment plan is really an opportunity for us to understand collectively and collaboratively what's going on. And we also need to capture how this problem affects them in the different domains. So this is medical, employment or academic, drug or alcohol use, their legal status and their family social status, as well as their psychiatric status. How does a problem impact any of those things? And are we writing these problem statements in behavioral terms? 
So it's much easier for us to understand what's going on with a client when it's written in behavioral terms. So instead of I am sad, which is you know accurate for a lot of our clients, how does the sadness affect you? Well, the depression is so bad that almost every day I have trouble getting out of bed. That's a behavioral definition for this problem. And are they also written in a non-judgmental and jargon-free manner? This is something that the client needs to be actively involved in. So it shouldn't be written in our psychobabble or our, our um, highbrow clinical language because they wouldn't be un- able to understand it. Um, so we want to avoid words like manipulative or rude or any of those things because they're not, again, in behavioral terms. So how do you define what manipulative means. Well, let's use different words. Is that a maladaptive attempt to have your needs met? Is that a a way of interacting with others socially that often pushes boundaries and might make others uncomfortable and discourage healthy social interactions? That's a better way to say manipulative in a way that's, that's collaborative with the client. And also, are we basing our problem definition on the priority of needs? So like I said, the safety issues are going to come first. And then from there, we can go down and evaluate which problems are the highest need. If you're about to get laid off because you've had so many absences, or I guess not laid off, but let go, you've had so many absences from work, then that's pretty high need once we've addressed the safety issues. Uh, Last but not least, when did the problem begin? Was it a year ago? Was it after a breakup? Was it during college? What was going on that might have contributed to this problem so that we can really start to focus in on then how to alleviate that problem? Once we've clearly defined the problem, then we can start to tackle it in the treatment plan by creating a goal or multiple goals and then associated objectives and our interventions as treatment professionals. According to the University of Southern California practicum training, a goal is an overarching principle that guides decision making. Objectives are specific measurable steps that can be taken to meet the goal. Sometimes it's hard to clarify what's a goal and what's an objective. So let's say that my goal is that I want to buy a Tesla Model S P100D. Maybe some of you would love to have that car as well. So that's my goal. I want to buy a Tesla one day. The objective associated with that would be I will save $75 per paycheck for 40 years. Note that this this objective is specific. It's measurable. It's attainable. Realistic. you know, kind of, and it's clearly time bound. So again, my goal, I want to buy a Tesla. My objective, I will save $75 per paycheck for a mere 40 years. And again, that's specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time bound. The SMART goal-based format in writing our objectives. Speaking of SMART treatment goals or objectives, I want to dive into the SMART format a little bit and spend some time talking about what a SMART objective really is. And I'd like to give credit to whoever invented the SMART format, be that an individual, an organization. And I really don't know. I know that it's taken lots of different forms over the years in different industries and uh, in different situations. And sometimes the acronym changes a little bit, whatever words we assign to the different letters. Um, But whoever you are out there, thank you. It's great. I want to give you credit. So here's a quick shout out. Uh, But so let's talk about smart, smart objectives or smart treatment goals. And I know, again, that we often call it a smart goal, but it's a little bit confusing because really what we're more often talking about is actually a smart objective. So smart stands for specific, measurable, agreed upon or achievable, realistic and time bound. And I'm going to break down those different categories and how they all can be compiled to fit together to create better objectives for our clients that are more likely to be achieved. So first and foremost, specific. A specific goal has a much higher chance of being achieved. Um, When we think about uh, the end of December and the new year is rolling around and maybe we're coming up with our new year's resolution, Uh, Research has shown we're much more likely to achieve that resolution if we're very, very specific in what that's going to be. So instead of saying, I'm going to go to the gym, uh, we would be better off saying something like, I will go to the gym at least two times per week for at least 30 minutes uh, per session. Um, With clients, it's important that we work with a client to answer questions to really get specific about the goal. 
So that might involve asking questions about who, what, when, and why. So who's going to be the person reporting this? Is it going to be the client themselves? Will it be a teacher, the person's spouse? Is it the therapist? Uh, what, what does the client want to accomplish? So we really clarify and ask questions about that. When, uh, how much time are we going to allow? So this kind of relates into the time bound. And why, what are the specific reasons, purposes, or benefits of accomplishing the goal? Uh, an example of this, a general goal would be to reduce sadness. A specific goal would say, in the next week, the client will reduce crying spells from five times a week to three times a week by actively engaging in self-care activities when feeling sad, such as going to the gym, painting, partaking in enjoy enjoyable activities, uh, so on and so forth. Moving on to M for measurable. Uh, we should work with our clients to establish concrete criteria for measuring progress toward each objective or goal that's been set. When we measure a client's progress in behavioral terms, we help the client reach that target and stay on track uh, as a therapist. Using clear behavioral measures also reinforces a client's autonomy and their ability to, pro to progress their own goals in an easy identifiable way. So to, to determine if a goal is measurable, we should ask questions like how much, how many, how often, how will the client know or how will I know that it's been accomplished? So for example, a goal that's difficult to measure is uh, improve sleep quality. A clear, more measurable way to state this is reduce incidence of nightmares from seven days a week to three days per week. So in this case, we're being very, very clear and measurable so that we can reflect on whether or not this target behavior is actually being addressed. Next, we move on to A for agreed upon or achievable. When we help clients identify treatment goals that are important to him, her, or them, we're supporting our client in achieving them. Goals that are too far out of reach for the client may discourage that person from really attempting them. And in that case, it doesn't serve us in therapy because they may not be able to make those changes that we're asking them to make because they're just simply not achievable. Um, or worse yet, maybe they're not agreed upon. A lot of times therapists or counselors might have an idea of what might be best for the client, but it's totally unrealistic in that client's worldview or in their skill set or in their current state of mind. So really A in this case needs to encapsulate both agreed upon and, and achievable. And when we achieve this, when we work toward it, we're much more likely again to support the client in making progress toward their stated objectives. So let's say that the client says, I wanna be happier. We need to work with them to understand how that person is measuring happiness and then clarify what objective is consistent with the overarching treatment goal and something that would be then achievable. So we've talked about what happiness is, we've agreed upon what happiness is in that person's worldview or perspective, and then now we need to move on to coming up with an objective that's actually achievable. And moving right into R for realistic, to be realistic, a goal must represent an objective toward which a client is both willing and able to work. A goal can be both high and realistic. You and the client um, are the only ones that can really decide just how lofty a goal is, but make sure that every objective is within reach. An additional way to know whether or not an objective is realistic is if the client has attempted and achieved something similar previously. So you might ask that when you're hitting this part of the SMART format and say, gosh, that sounds like a lot of days to um, to go to the gym if you haven't been going to the gym at all. Is that something you've been able to do previously? Tell me more about that. What were you able to do at that point in your life to motivate yourself to go to the gym that frequently? So again, um, it is working with a client to come up with something that's agreed upon. So let's say that a client is struggling a great deal with calm communication with family members and a goal that they set is a uh, Let's say they say, I'm not going to get angry or yell at my parents. If they live in a really high conflict family system, it's probably not really realistic to say, I'm gonna go from arguing all the time to not arguing at all. It would be much more realistic to say, this week client will improve how he handles anger by counting to 10 and taking three deep breaths before responding when upset. And he'll try to do this at least two or three times this week. 
So in this case, again, we've taken a target behavior, we've defined how often it's occurring, and then in order for it to be realistic, we're looking at how, how are we gonna get from point A to point B, and is that something that really seems like it could be done? And last but not least is T for time bound. A goal should really be bound to a time frame uh, as well as an objective. So this may be related to the client's anticipated treatment length. If you work in a facility and you do partial hospitalization or residential treatment or even a higher level of care, your time bound objectives may be just a day or two or maybe they're a week. If you have a longer treatment episode and maybe you're in outpatient care, you should still have some idea of how long it's gonna to take to achieve an objective. So for example, a good time bound objective would be in the next seven days, the client will complete three cognitive behavioral therapy ABC worksheets and create a list of five triggers for substance use. So in this case, we've defined exactly what they're going to be doing and how long they have to do it and with what kind of frequency. Um, a more vague version of this would be client will complete homework as requested by therapist. All of these things, when we have goals that are specific, measurable, agreed upon or achievable, realistic and time bound, this allows us as therapists to really pay attention to what our clients are working through. And then we can know if we're either on the right track or if we're off track. And for our clients, it also establishes their own autonomy and might help with their self-esteem as well. We don't want to be setting treatment objectives or an overarching treatment goal that's so lofty that the client can't achieve it. They may already be struggling uh, with feelings of um, low self-esteem or low self-efficacy. So all these pieces really fit together for us to support them in having a really positive treatment episode where they get better faster. You can also think about in the creation of your objectives, what symptoms a client is experiencing. So if your client has insomnia, anxiety, and recent weight loss, these are all symptoms perhaps of an anxiety disorder. You could create sept separate objectives for each of these prominent issues, or you could create objectives across multiple domains that relate to the anxiety disorder. For example, consider a goal about having lunch or dinner with a friend once per week in order to increase a client's social support network which may in, in turn reduce their anxious symptoms. So there isn't necessarily a right way to do this, whether you want to have one specific goal and many objectives or many goals and, and then many associated objectives for that. It's what works for you and also what works for the client because this part of the process really needs to be a conversation with them. So when they say, I'm sad, you clarify, what does sadness feel like for you? How do you know you're sad? Or if I were to interview your family members or your loved ones or your coworkers, what would they tell me about how they know that you're sad? And so you start to hone in on this behavioral definition for the problem. And then from there, you can start to identify, okay, so, so it's, it's not just that we're trying to reduce the sadness, but really for you, that's tearfulness. So we're trying to reduce the tearfulness. And then you start coming up with objectives associated with that overarching goal. When developing goals with a client, it's best when collaborative and with direct input from that person. So you might ask questions like, what is one goal you have for therapy? Or what are you hoping to accomplish by our working together? What would you like to be different in your life or in how you feel? What steps can you take to make this happen? You can also offer suggestions and ideas if the client gets stuck. For example, you might say, on a scale of 0 to 10, with 0 being totally not achieved and 10 being totally achieved with this goal, how far along would you say you are with regard to this goal? This is a measurable and motivational interviewing-based way to help really zero in on that goal. Once you've asked a client what they work on in treatment, let's say they some, say something like, I want to feel less anxious. You can then clarify with that client what anxiety feels like to him, her, them, and that will help you focus on a behavioral measure for the objectives that will be associated with this goal. Alternatively, you could offer suggestions on what goals might be helpful to reduce those symptoms of anxiety, like engaging in, D in CBT, coming up with a daily routine that perhaps includes some exercise, some time in nature, and a healthier diet. Another important question to ask yourself clinically, do these goals address the problem statements? So continually reflect back to what the client presented with 
in treatment and what they said was the biggest problem that was looming large in their life. Make sure that the goal is directly related to that. And if it's unrelated, then it may be time to either modify the problem statement or to work with a client to come up with um, a different goal that's more directly related to the problem statement. It's also an opportunity for you to clarify with the client and make sure that you fully understand what they're hoping to accomplish during this therapy episode. For those of you that work a lot in dual diagnosis, sometimes it can be difficult to help clients really clarify what their problem statement might be. And then there may also be a challenge associated with coming up with appropriate goals to meet that problem statement. You might consider creating separate goals to address specific issues that are related back to that problem statement. So this could include mental health-based goals, psychiatric goals, substance use-related goals, and family or communication-related goals. There's nothing wrong with having one problem statement and multiple goals associated with that that cover different domains like psychiatric and mental health, or you could potentially create multiple problem statements as long as there's some interconnectedness and it seems reasonable to both you and the client to work on those goals conjointly and at the same time. Once you've agreed on the problem statement and the overarching goals for therapy or counseling, the next step is developing objectives with the client. Basically, this involves clarifying what the client will say or do, under what circumstances, and how often he, she, or they will participate in this behavior or change. This is where that acronym of SMART comes into play. So again, SMART stands for Specific, Measurable, agreed upon or achievable, realistic, and time-bound. So a specific objective has a much greater chance of being accomplished than a general goal. To help a client set a specific goal, you need to work with a client to answer questions like who, what, where, when, and why. A specific objective, for example, will say, in the next week, the client will reduce crying spells from five times a week to three times a week, by actively implementing self-care activities when feeling sad, like going to the gym or painting or partaking in an enjoyable activity. A measurable goal means that it's concrete. It measures how much, how many, how long, or how often. Agreed upon and achievable means that the goal is realistic for you and for the client. Goals that are too far out of reach for the client may discourage him, her, her, or them, from attempting to make that necessary change to improve his or her or their quality of life. And we can help the client set treatment goals that are both uh, agreeable to them and also in keeping with our goals with them for them. Basically, if a thing exists, then it exists in some amount. And if it exists in some amount, then it's something that can be measured. This is a quote from E.L. Thorndike. And for an objective to be realistic, A goal must or objective must represent an objective toward which a client is both willing and able to work. A goal can be both high and realistic. You and the client are the only ones that can decide how high a treatment goal or objective should be, but make sure it's within reason for that person. And you might also ask if they've accomplished something like that in the past. And lastly, time bound. The goal should be bound to a time frame and should be related to the client's anticipated treatment length. Goals are often written in seven-day increments or in a few weeks or perhaps over the course of a month. And during treatment plan reviews, each goal should be either reformulated, like closed out or updated, or continued into the next week or length of time if the client hasn't made any specific progress toward that goal or it hasn't been achieved. So, for example, an objective might be client will increase the use of I feel statements from zero times in session to two times in session, or client will reduce angry outbursts from two times weekly to one time weekly by engaging in grounding exercises when feeling angry. Some important questions to ask yourself as you're developing these objectives with your clients. Are the objectives attainable during the active treatment phase? Would the client be able to understand these goals and objectives as written? Would both the client and the treatment program find these goals and objectives acceptable? And has the client stage of readiness to change been considered in the goal and objective statement? So for example, if we have a client that's very much in pre-contemplation about a certain issue that's occurring in their life, or maybe in contemplation because they're in treatment with you and they're willing to talk about it and consider it as a difficulty, 
it may not be realistic for them to have a goal that is highly active that would be more appropriate for somebody who's in the active stage of change. We're most of the way through an effective treatment plan. We have a problem statement, we have goals, and we've started to narrow down concrete objectives that the client will be using as a guide as they work through treatment. The next step to consider includes what our interventions will be as a therapist or counselor. What are we going to do to assist the client and under what circumstances? Will the client attend services like individual or family therapy, substance abuse treatment, or medication management? These factors should be specified in the treatment plan and in, and associated with the objectives so that we know what other services are being provided to the client in support of the overarching treatment goals. This might include specific interventions like activity scheduling or cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive restructuring, perhaps behavioral experiments or assigning homework, maybe teaching coping skills like relaxation techniques or mindfulness and grounding. This might also include how often you're going to check in with the client psychiatrist, for example, and under what circumstances. Have you established contact with that individual? And what's the best way for all of you to work together toward the common interest of this client's success in therapy? It's also important to consider how we're going to measure progress toward these objectives and the overarching goal, and also for us to keep in mind what the outcomes are. Are our goals and objectives being regularly reassessed and revised or closed out? Goodness knows that clients change and their lives change during the course of treatment. So it may be that the concern or issue that brings them into treatment in the first place may eventually jump to the background for a number of reasons and a different issue might take its place. If that's the case, it's important to hone in on that problem statement that's new and current and updated, and then also create from that new goals and new associated objectives to make sure that the treatment continues moving along with where the client is in his, her, or their life. Are we also documenting why we're revising or closing out the goals? It's recommended not only to close them out, and basically what I mean when I say that, we write down this goal is effectively being discontinued, and it's important for us to provide a reason. So is it being discontinued because they achieved that goal? In which case, high five, awesome, sounds like you have a great working alliance. Is that goal perhaps unachievable during this current treatment episode? Or do you need additional adjunct services until they can achieve that goal? Or like I said, has that goal taken a back burner position and there's something else that's more important right now in the client's world, so you're refocusing the purpose of therapy? These progress notes and the outcomes need to be updated frequently. Again, going back to that medical model example, when I was in physical therapy, my physical therapists were essentially writing very small objectives that I accomplished almost every session. And if I didn't accomplish them, then they were effectively carried over into the next session in hopes that maybe I would have that lower level of pain or that increased level of mobility. This allowed the treatment team there to move through the treatment plan in a really cohesive and concrete way. It also helped me as a client or patient know what to expect from my treatment. It didn't feel like my providers were asleep at the wheel. They were actively engaged, asking me questions, asking me for feedback, essentially every session. And that might be a different way for us to look at the therapy that we provide. But when we step back and go from a behavioral health model into a medical model, we can see how it becomes really important to check in with the client to basically see if the treatment is effective. We'll talk in the subsequent e-learning about some of the research that supports effective treatment planning with clients, but the bottom line is this. When our clients are actively engaged in the treatment process and we clinicians receive constant feedback from them, we are much more effective as counselors and therapists, and our clients are much more likely to report a better outcome from our treatment. I want to include a few other notes about treatment planning so that you don't forget these as you move through this process with your clients. When clarifying the client's progress, this can be done through a formal assessment procedure, 
like filling out an outcome measure form at the beginning or end of session, or it can simply be done by asking, hey, we've been working recently on sleep hygiene techniques. Has this been helpful for you in working through your insomnia? Is that still something that's really important to you to work on in treatment? And is there anything that I could be doing differently in order to support you with this? Those types of questions show our clients that we're actively involved in their treatment and that we're also paying attention and seeking their feedback. A few other important points to remember include the following. Is this treatment plan individualized to fit the client based on their unique abilities, their goals, their lifestyle, their socioeconomic status, their work history, their educational background, and their culture? I had a situation once many years ago in which I was working with a young woman uh, on her anxiety disorder. And in session, we would work together on certain techniques. And one day I said, here's a worksheet pretty early on in treatment. Why don't you take this worksheet home and bring it back with you next week? And we'll talk about your progress. So next week I asked her about that worksheet and her face fell. And she ended up explaining to me that she has dyslexia. And it's very difficult for her to read through that kind of material and understand it. It was much easier for her when we had done something actively in session. My treatment technique was inappropriate for her needs. And there are some times that we're not going to know this, just like that particular situation. And unfortunately, I wasn't aware of the fact that she had dyslexia early on in the assessment. It wasn't something that she felt comfortable sharing. So I was unaware. In that case, we obviously need to modify our treatment plan and the associated goals and objectives and what we're doing as providers to make sure that it's really focused on how this person is presenting in the room, not how other people might respond to similar objectives. We should also ask ourselves, are the client's strengths being incorporated into this treatment plan? So if you have a client that recently has been struggling with relatively severe depression and they're feeling really unmotivated, what if you worked with that client to figure out things that have motivated them in the past or things that they're passionate about? What are their hobbies and what gives them a sense of mastery? Let's say that it's cooking. So could you integrate in the treatment plan that every weekend they're going to do their best to go to the market and buy fresh ingredients and make a wonderful meal for themselves? As long as this doesn't feel like a burden and for them actually feels like a step toward alleviating their depressive symptoms. In this case, we're taking this person's interests and their hobbies and their passions and using those strengths to form the background of a really effective and individualized treatment plan. Also, we should ask ourselves, Uh, ask ourselves, have the clients uh, and perhaps their significant others like family members participated in developing this treatment plan? I think we've all kind of been in the situation where we've worked with a client that has a similar background or a similar issue and we're like, oh, I know what's going to work. Here's an idea. This is what we should do. And we kind of move too quickly through the treatment planning phase because we're really dictating the treatment plan. Treatment plans are more effective when the clients are dictating the treatment plan, and we're working with them to clarify what that looks like for them individually. And also, from an administrative standpoint, it's important that our treatment plans are signed and dated by everybody that participates in developing this treatment plan, including the client. This is particularly done in medical or insurance-based environments. Um, accreditation agencies generally require that the clients are actively involved in the creation of the treatment plan because it shows better uh, adherence and more positive outcomes. And one way that they monitor that is by having the client sign on that document. If you work in a private practice setting, this may not be something that feels right for you. But if you are in a group-based setting and you are, again, accepting third-party payments, it's important for every member of the treatment team and the client to sign that treatment plan. Additionally, if you work with insurance, many insurance companies at higher levels of care require that it's actually the doctor that might be dictating the treatment plan. So make sure that that medical director or psychiatrist is actively involved in the treatment planning stage and that they're fully aware of what you're doing in your counseling or therapy work in order to support the overarching treatment goals like alleviating depression or improving substance use disorder symptoms. Before we move on to discharge planning as part of today's session, I want to spend some time giving you some examples of great, smart-style 
objectives. So again, SMART is specific, measurable, attainable or achievable, realistic, and time-bound. So here are some examples. Client will increase asking for help from others, including from family, from zero times a week to two times a week to increase emotional connectedness to social support network and reduce isolative and drug-seeking behaviors. Client will increase finding healthy activities when bored from one time a week to three times a week in order to address feelings of sadness relating to depression. Client will increase the use of I feel statements from two times a week to four times a week to improve his, her, or their social support network and alleviate feelings of anxiety relating to judgments from peers. Enhance family cohesion as evidenced by increased use of communication skills, such as empathic listening, assertive communication, from zero times a week to two times a week. Client will increase the use of positive self-talk from zero times a day to three times a day to improve self-esteem and reduce depressive symptoms. Client will decrease isolative behaviors like physically withdrawing from situations by walking away or remaining quiet from three times per week to one time per week to help increase clients' feelings of social connectedness and reduce loneliness and depression. You'll notice that most of those particular objectives are written in the positive. So generally, they're looking at things that the client will increase doing. This is sometimes a little bit easier for clients because it gives them an opportunity to uh, replace a behavior instead of trying to stop a problematic behavior. So the goal here is that we're potentially replacing a less desirable behavior with something that might be more pro-social or helpful for their recovery. Okay, we've wrapped up today's portion about treatment planning, and now we'll transition into discharge planning. Jumping back into the medical model, if you've ever been to the hospital for an illness or an injury, you were likely provided with a thorough discharge plan. At least, hopefully you were. This plan should have told you what to expect, who to contact if you're concerned about your symptoms, and an overall plan for your future care. So it might list that you ought to return to your doctor in one month for a follow-up, or if you experience certain symptoms, to either call your provider or to go, for example, to urgent care or set an appointment within 24 hours. The relapse rates for conditions like depression and substance use are well documented, and it's important to support clients with a firm and clear discharge process and plan so that they understand what to do if their symptoms return. For those of you that work with managed care, particularly as a facility, insurance companies require that discharge planning starts within 24 to 72 hours of the client's admission to the program. At first glance, that requirement can sound a little bit bonkers, But when you step back, you can realize that actually this is prudent. The best way to have this conversation with clients when they've just admitted to the program or the families um, have just admitted a family member to the program is to explain to them that you want to make sure that you have a plan in place so that when treatment is done, you know exactly what to do and they also know exactly what to do. Upon discharge from your care, it's best practice for clients to have a pre-scheduled appointment that's scheduled for them, and many managed care providers require this. Discharge planning from the start sets the tone that the provider or facility is actively involved in this plan. It allows the provider and facility to steer the patient or client into a safe discharge plan, and it encourages an appropriate treatment episode or length of stay. Fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants discharge planning can be chaotic and unnecessarily stressful for both the client and the treatment team or provider. Your discharge planning skills also impact your reputation within the community. For example, I'm an outpatient provider, and I've I've worked with a number of residential facilities that have discharged clients relatively abruptly from their programs. As an outpatient provider, I feel the brunt of the family's stress after a poorly managed discharge. And this is something that influences whether or not I'll recommend that treatment provider or treatment center in the future. I've worked with other programs that regularly update me and involve me in the client's treatment plan and discharge planning process, going so far as to call me to make an appointment for the client prior to that person leaving their program. And that really is best practice. Those are the providers that I'm going to refer future clients and families to. 
So with our discharge planning, we need to remember that not only does it really help patients and clients, and it's a reasonable expectation that they'll have for us to handle this process well, it also supports the health of our practices. In order to help you conceptualize really solid discharge planning, I want to share something with you called ideal treatment planning or ideal discharge planning. This comes from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. In this acronym, we have I, which is meant to represent include the patient and family as full partners in the discharge planning process. So here we see that we're encouraged to create a discharge plan, but also to actively involve the client and the family to make sure that this plan is reasonable and it's something that they understand. D in ideal stands for discuss, where we discuss with the client and family five key areas to prevent problems at home. Number one, we describe what life at home will be like. Number two, we review medications, if any. Number three, we highlight warning signs and problems. Number four, we explain the prognosis. And number five, we make follow-up appointments before ending treatment. So this last one is more geared toward agency-based formal programs. However, even we as outpatient providers might say to a client, you know, we're going to discharge from care right now, but I want to see you again in six weeks just to check in and see how you're doing. So again, D stands for discuss these five key areas, and those are describe what life at home may be like, review medications, highlight warning signs and problems, explain prognosis, and make follow-up appointments before ending treatment. The E in ideal stands for educate. We educate the patient and family in plain language about the client's condition, the discharge process, and the next steps throughout the treatment stay or treatment expectation. So again, E is for educate. It's great for us to take that time to tell them, hey, here is a relapse rate that's associated with this condition that you have, and here are some of the warning signs that you might be looking for, and here's what you should do if any of those things happen. Here are resources that are available to you. The A in ideal stands for assess. We need to assess how well the treatment team explained the diagnosis, the condition, and the next steps in the client's care to the client and family, and we need to seek feedback. So once we've done all these great things, we've included the patient, we've talked with the patient or client and the family, we've educated them, we then need to assess how well we've done it. We may think that we did a wonderful job, but in fact, they still might feel like they have lots of questions that might otherwise go unanswered. And so we need to encourage feedback from them and ask actively. L stands for listen. Listen to and honor the patient's and family's goals, preferences, observations, and concerns. This in general is just how we are great providers. We need to be flexible in our treatment and respond to the feedback from our clients and our patients in order to be the most effective. So again, the ideal checklist for treatment and discharge planning is I, include, where we include the patient and family, D, discuss. We discuss with the client and family key areas to prevent problems. E, we educate the client and family. A, we assess and ask for feedback to see if we've been effective in describing this process to them. And L, we listen to and honor the patients and family's goals, preferences, observations, and concerns. If we do all of these things actively as part of our discharge planning process, we're going to really help set the client up for success after they've terminated care with us. Now it's time to put all these different puzzle pieces together. During today's training, we've talked about taking a cue from the medical model, how assessment leads to diagnosis, which leads to the treatment plan and also our progress notes. We've talked about some different kinds of treatment plan types, like the symptom-based treatment plan and the theory-based treatment plan, and how we can bring these two concepts together to create a clinical treatment plan. We've worked on how to define the problem clearly with the client's involvement. We've clarified a goal versus an objective, and then also talked about how to develop goals and then develop those objectives that are the little concrete steps that we're going to take in order to help clients achieve their goals. We've talked about what interventions we might do to support this. We've also talked about how to assess progress and outcomes with our treatment plans. 
Then moving from treatment planning into discharge planning, we talked about the ideal acronym and the importance of supporting clients fully in the discharge planning process. When we can do all of these pieces smoothly, we are really exemplary providers. That's our best opportunity to do wonderful counseling and therapy and really focus in with our clients on the most important aspects of their care. It also helps keep us accountable. When we have a treatment plan, basically that's our map. And the discharge planning is clarity clarity about our, our destination, as well as offering information about where the client's going to go from that destination when we're no longer working closely with them. All of those things, again, help us deliver really wonderful, effective care. My goal here is really to help you work smarter, not harder. You bring such valuable skills and education and experience to the table with your clients. And this clinical documentation stuff, it's super important, but it shouldn't be the bane of your existence. Hopefully from our discussion today about treatment and discharge planning, you have a little bit more clarity about how to integrate these ideas into the awesome care that you're providing to your clients. For more on the topic of delivering effective treatment, check out my e-learning titled Clinical Best Practice, What Really Matters in Helping Clients Heal. Thank you for attending today and take care. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.